This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. To get new episodes every Thursday, make sure to subscribe. Today we're at a temporal and cultural crossroads in the early story of the British Isles. It's the Iron Age, a time where the political landscape is complex and fragmented, with competing and collaborating groups ruling different regions. But their way of life is under threat from a powerful empire over the sea to the south, the Romans. And to discuss how two native queens responded to full-scale Roman invasion, their similarities and their differences, their fates, and of course their historic legacies, are our two guests for our conversation today. Hi, I'm Andrew Roberts, and I'm a properties historian with English Heritage. Hi, I'm Julia Farley, and I'm the curator of the British and European Iron Age collections at the British Museum. Welcome to you both, and thank you for coming on. A quick note about this episode, though, first. This discussion will contain references to rape and sexual violence, which some listeners may find distressing. But Andrew first, who are the key characters, these two queens? What tribes and areas do they rule and represent? Prior to the Roman conquest, the people of late Iron Age Britain didn't have a unified political or cultural identity. There are actually dozens of powerful independent territories. And in the early decades of the Roman invasion, Boudicca was the queen of the Iceni in modern-day East Anglia, and Cartamandua was the queen of the Brigantes, who controlled a vast territory which takes in much of modern-day Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cumbria, Durham, and even bits of Northumberland. Together, they are hugely important, dynamic leaders whose actions are really crucial to the history of the late Iron Age and the early phases of the Roman conquest. Okay, so let's look at the uh, context then for this Roman invasion, which is to come, and get to understand this third character in our story, the Romans. For people who don't know about the Roman invasion of Britain, it's actually more complex than the Romans suddenly arrived in AD 43, isn't it? Yeah, so Britain's relationship with Rome goes back to at least the time of Julius Caesar, who in 55-54 BC, as governor of Gaul, mounts two expeditions to Britain. And the results of these are that he exacts tribute from some of the tribes of Britain, and he establishes relationships with some of the peoples of of Britain and and really gives Rome a kind of an understanding of what Britain was like and what it had to offer. So prior to the Roman invasion, we have almost 90 years of trade, particularly with the, the peoples of the south of Britain, and relationships between some of these kingdoms and the Romans, and particularly the Roman Roman emperor. And this is quite important for the context of the invasion of Roman Britain, because there are many reasons why Rome tries to conquer Britain, but the immediate pretext seems to be that the emperor Claudius is responding to the expulsion from Britain of a pro-Roman king, 
Verica of the Atrabates, a territory centred on Silchester, by another tribe, the Catavalauni, who are seeking to extend their area of influence westwards from their homelands to the north of the Thames near, near Colchester. And so this means that a powerful anti-Roman party was, was gaining wider control of southern Britain. And so in AD 43, this formerly insular power struggle is going to be interrupted by the invasion of Claudius's 40,000 or so Roman soldiers. That's really interesting. It's like um, Rome was unofficially puppeteering a little bit the people of Britain, but then they found that their control of these puppets was starting to sort of slip. Is that a sort of fair assessment? I'm not saying, I don't think necessarily puppeteering. I think Rome consistently establishes relationships with peoples beyond their borders, whether it's sort of for, for some kind of immediate end or perhaps just to have a kind of a stake in, in the long term sort of status and politics of, of those particular regions in case there a threat develops or in case they want to perhaps exploit a situation and take more sort of direct steps to control that territory. If we were to imagine then a map of Great Britain, how did the Roman invasion, when it happened officially in AD 43, permeate the land after the fleet landed at Richborough on the tip of Kent? Well, the immediate strategic priority is to work towards the heartland of the Catavalauni, this, this anti-Roman tribe. And so they move from Kent towards London, they cross the Thames, moving towards Colchester. And then after that initial phase, there's a, a move westwards and to the northwest. So within about five years of the invasion, you could say that the Romans are effectively controlling all the territory to the southeast of a line that would run from the, the sort of the mouth of the, the River Severn up towards the Humber. And then in the subsequent decades, the, there's a bit more leisurely expansion upon this, this foothold as they progress into, into what is modern-day Wales and towards the, the, the north of England. So initially a kind of triangular chunk from sort of modern-day Gloucestershire up to about what sort of Hull, that kind of area yeah, on the on the northeastern much. coast. I must confess that modern geography is not my strong point. If you could do it in ancient terms, I'd be on on firmer ground. But yeah, that sounds about right. All right. If we look at how the native Britons responded to this sort of change in the map, did they put up much of a fight? Was there some concession? Was there some negotiation involved with the Romans? Well, the Catavalauni put up a fight, but their defeat is pretty rapid. We're talking sort of weeks into the invasion. They, they really can't resist the, the power of the Roman army. And they, as others are, are quite literally occupied by the Romans. Cassius Dio, the Roman author, also records that there are 11 British kings that surrender to Claudius, and they couldn't possibly all have been conquered in this period. So presumably there's a bit of diplomacy going on here and maybe an establishment of a different sort of relationships whereby some are occupied, directly conquered. Others are essentially now clients of Rome. So they have certain obligations towards Rome, but they're not under direct rule. One of the leaders of the Catavalauni, Caraticus, in fact, escapes the Roman conquest of, of, of that area and goes on to sort of mount a campaign of resistance to Rome elsewhere within Britain. So there's kind of a mixture of direct dominance and other min means of control. And also there's plenty left to do here for the Roman army after the initial invasion. Bearing in mind what is going on at the time, people in Britain are living at a time where the spread of information is not 
the kind of information that we have today. So would this invasion have felt very viscerally threatening and kind of like, well, my life is severely in danger here and I don't really know what's going on? And would the information about Rome's intentions have even been passed on to ordinary people, not just the Catavolauni? I think that's a really interesting question. And normally when I say it's a very interesting question, it means that I'm not entirely sure I can answer it satisfactorily. I think that the people of Iron Age Britain would have known about the Romans, and they would probably be very aware of the, the size and the power of, the, of that kind of edifice that's on their doorstep. I think in terms of understanding their intentions and having an immediate sense of danger, I think that's possibly less likely. We need to be aware of, of the fact that we as kind of historians looking back upon this, we can see the, the kind of what might seem to be the kind of inexorable spread of Rome the inexorable conquest of, 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 of most of Britain and, and their subsequent rule. But at this point, it's not necessarily inevitable that the Romans are going to conquer Britain. Not necessarily, it's not necessarily inevitable that they're going to stay, because remember, they have been here before and then, and then disappeared again. And Rome didn't always conquer the places that it, it invaded. Yeah, I think, Andrew, the way that you've answered that is really interesting, because when you're in the moment, you don't know what's happening tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. But Julia, what do you think? Well, there's two things. Firstly, I think that people were much more kind of plugged in and, and connected to the, the news and what's happening than we maybe give them credit for in the past when we're thinking about this time before telephones or the internet. You know, And I think we can imagine that there would have been kind of riders going out and sending messages and communicating. And as we'll hear as our kind of stories unfold, there are lots of moments in that kind of early Roman period in, in Britain where messages clearly are flying around quite quite quickly. But also, I completely agree with, with Andrew that, you know, to the people in Britain at the time, you know, we now have this sense of the Roman Empire. And it's this big thing. It's an unstoppable force. It's a huge smear across the map. But from your perspective in Iron Age Britain, this is just another polity, right? In Britain, there's lots of different groups, kingdoms, tribes, polities, whatever you want to call them, that are competing, collaborating. They have like alliances that sometimes fall apart, you know, and this is just another group that is coming into that mix and has been part of that mix for best part of 100 years. So the fact that they arrive isn't necessarily going to be seen as a kind of big game changer. But then there are certain moments where I think people must have been wondering a bit. I mean, we hear about Claudius arriving with with elephants in the streets of, of Camelodunum, which is this indigenous capital that then becomes Colchester. And I have to think that moment when you as an Iron Age Briton are looking upon an elephant, you might be starting to wonder if this isn't a bit of a, a tone shift. Yes. And of course, Colchester in Essex, for people who are listening internationally, that's sort of uh, north east of uh, London. Uh, yes, and in the heartland of East Anglia that we will be talking about more as we talk about Boudicca. Just to add Indeed. for our international listeners, elephants are not native to Essex. <laughs> no, no, of course they're not. But I think what we've just discussed there is a really interesting point about how these events would have developed day by day. And I think that's quite important for our listeners to get a sense of that this is really a nuanced thing and um, events are changing by the day. And as Julia's described, alliances are changing by the day and all these sort of things. So I think that's a really interesting context to now bring in our first character to talk about, who is, of course, Boudicca. So she's famous for her revolt. But what kind of leader was she before she rebelled against the Romans, Julia? Yes, I always like to remind people about this, because I think if um, the listeners have heard of Boudicca, they've probably heard of Boudicca, who fought the Romans, um, who rebelled. 
And of course, that's true. And we'll, we'll come on to talking about that story. But if we think about Boudicca's life and the world that she lives in, she begins her story as a ruler as being pro-Roman, as far as we know. So we don't know. We, we first hear about Boudicca in the Roman sources really once her rebellion starts. They're uh, only interested in people who are either their close allies or are causing them trouble sometimes, the Romans. So she doesn't appear until later. So we don't know the exact beginnings of her story. But we can imagine that she might have been born perhaps in the AD 20s or 30s. And she is growing up in this world in East Anglia that would already have had some quite close contacts with Rome. You know, she would have been experienced with some aspects of kind of Roman life. Perhaps there's already kind of client rulers around further to the south. And then as after the Roman invasion of AD 43, she is seeing things like, you know, Camelodunum, Colchester and Essex being transformed from this indigenous capital to a Roman settlement for veterans from their army. She's seeing this tremendous change. She personally is probably doing very well out of it because Boudicca and her husband Prasutagus are in place and probably from at least about AD 47 as pro-Roman client rulers in East Anglia. So Boudicca's story, as best we know it, starts with a pro-Roman stance. Whenever you have this kind of conquest, there's going to be people doing badly, um, people who are suffering, people who are being killed, but also people who are savvy political manipulators and manoeuvrers and who do very well out of it. And Boudicca and Prasutagus are two of those people. So they are ruling with the backing of Rome. That sort of explains this client-ruler aspect. They have the support of the Roman Empire, effectively, to, to manage things in their locality as they see fit with the Roman stamp of approval. Yeah, and this is win-win for the Romans because it's cheaper and more efficient to get people to rule themselves but send you taxes and, you know, be loyal to you and control their own kind of, you know, people than it is to send in your army and punch down rebellion. So as Andrew was saying before, the Romans do this really commonly around their frontiers. They have these kind of, you know, buffer states, if you like, where it's not Roman direct rule, but they have people in place who are sympathetic to Rome and are ruling with the support of Rome. Indirect Roman rule. Okay, very interesting. You can see how they sort of kept their lands to be conquered, supple, ready and, and ripe for invasion when the time was right. How did Boudicca, our first Iron Age queen's position towards Rome, change? What was the catalyst or catalysts? Well, you've hit the nail on the head when you say that Rome is kind of waiting till the time is right. So Boudicca is ruling with her husband, Prasutagus. And we think that Boudicca herself is also of, um, of noble birth. We're told that in the sources. It may well be that, you know, she is the queen just as much as he is the king, if we want to use those, those terms. But Rome very much feel that their agreement, this kind of, you know, will you take care of uh, your side and we'll look after you, is with Prasutagus, her husband. And when Prasutagus dies, which happens in AD 60 or 61, so they've probably been ruling for, you know, over a decade and everything might have seemed quite calm. But Prasutagus, again, trying to be this kind of savvy political operator, leaves his kingdom, the, the lands, jointly to his daughters, so his daughters with Boudicca, and to the Roman emperor Nero, thinking that this will kind of, you know, keep everything sweet. But the Romans feel that their agreement was with Prasutagus, so they move in to take the territories back. 
There's talk that they call in a large loan they've made to the Ikini. And so perhaps there's a kind of money element involved as well. And um, the story that we are told in the sources is that Roman soldiers rape Boudicca's daughters and flog Boudicca herself. So some pretty horrific events take place. Understandably, this completely changes Boudicca's opinion about the Romans. She will feel betrayed. She will feel that she had an alliance with them, which has been broken, and that it would have probably, from her mind, been just as much in her name as her husband's. And that's the point at which everything changes politically for Boudicca. It suddenly becomes really personal, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That crime against her daughters. And just a quick note about pronunciation. You said Ikeni. Is it also the Iceni tribe, her tribe? Yes. So there's always a bit of debate about whether you have a hard C or a soft C with these things. The Victorians always preferred a soft C, Bodicea, Iceni. But nowadays we tend to think that a hard K is probably a little bit more like how people would have said it in the past. So I tend to say Boudicca and Ikeni, but there's not really a, a kind of right or wrong answer. Just an important thing for when people are talking amongst themselves, I suppose, after they've listened to this podcast, or looking it up on the internet. So, well, I can imagine Boudicca feeling pretty crestfallen at this point, and like her back was against the wall, and wanting to come out fighting, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think she felt crestfallen. I think she felt enraged, right? So we only have the Roman version of these events, and I think Andrew might tell us a bit more about the sources in a bit, but Boudicca absolutely comes out swinging. Clearly to her mind, what the Romans have done is completely beyond the pale and unacceptable. And she does what has not happened before. And she rallies a number of different Iron Age tribes together to fight back against the Romans. And there is quite some possibility that this was really carefully thought out, kind of, you know, rebellion or, or coup, if you like. She rides out and sacks three different towns, so kind of burning these places to the ground um, and killing tens of thousands of people, both Romans and, and native Britons. And that's Colchester, London and St Albans. And as she's riding out doing this, the then governor of Britain, Suetonius Paulinus, is actually off up in Anglesey, so quite far away on the northwest coast, an island off the northwest coast of Wales, putting down a Druid rebellion. And potentially this is kind of a setup, right? that there's this thing happening up in Wales in order to distract and to allow Boudicca and her forces that she has brought together to really get pretty far. And this is the closest that Britons come to, you know, I'm, I'm an Iron Age curator, so I'm going to say it, just getting rid of the Romans, kicking them out. This is the closest that that comes. But the spoilers for anyone who is uh, encountering the story of, uh, of Boudicca first time today, but it's probably long ago enough that spoilers are okay. Suetonius Paulinus hears the news, rallies his legions, rides down and sets essentially a, a trap for Boudicca really, somewhere in the West Midlands along Watling Street. And so as Boudicca is riding out from London, and which she is kind of raised to the ground, there is still a layer of thick black burned soil if you dig down in certain parts of London from that Boudican destruction lair. Boudicca rides out um, and she meets Suetonius Paulinus and their troops battle and Boudicca loses. And this again is a kind of, there are different ways of fighting. The Romans are very organised with their legions, but for the Britons partly this is personal, this is performative and their camp followers and their families are there too. And this kind of, you know, blocks their, their escape and um, many, many people, um, including women and children, would have been massacred there by the Romans as well. Well, it sounds horrific. Is there a name of this battle? The Battle of Watling Street, we don't know exactly where it is. There are many theories and many people looking for it, but we don't know for certain. 
It's entirely possible it could be found one day because there probably would be archaeological traces there, but we don't know yet. And Watling Street is the name of this main thoroughfare, which I believe connects London to other routes. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Running out west into the, the West Midlands. That's right. So that's, well, quite a blow to the insurgent Britons, isn't it? To lose their first Iron Age queen in our story. Do we have any sense from the sources about how this went down? It, it must have felt like a terrible defeat. Yeah, that's the end, really, of this rebellion. It's not the end of, of any rebellions against Roman rule, but this that's a, it's a crushing defeat, a crushing blow. We don't know exactly what happened to Boudicca. One of the sources, Tacitus, tells us that she poisoned herself, and Cassius Dio tells us that she fell ill and died after the battle, but certainly she seems to have died in the aftermath. Okay, so we, we don't actually know whether she went out through a sword to the stomach or uh, and was on horseback swinging either. <laughs> I mean, that's that's certainly possible. We might talk a bit more about Iron Age women a bit later. And Boudicca, she may have ridden into battle herself, but really the vision I have of her is this really politically savvy like operator. She's a she's a leader. She's not necessarily going to be actually physically fighting, though. Though who knows? Curious. Okay, we'll touch on that image a little bit later, I think, because that's an interesting point to talk about how she's immortalised. But for some people. Just encountering Boudicca for the first time in this podcast might consider her to be this outlier in this rebellion, but she wasn't that unique in, in terms of being a person, a woman who was dealing the, with the Romans. So let's move on to talk about Cartimandua, this other Iron Age queen. Andrew, when and where did Cartimandua rule? She's of the Brigantes, isn't she, in, in the north of England? Yeah, she's the queen of the Brigantes, and we think she reigned roughly from about AD 43 to AD 69. As with Boudicca, our sources are only interested in the sort of the Iron Age players in as much as they have a connection with Rome and as much as their story connects with Rome. But we can sort of discern reading between the lines that she is, again, from a powerful noble family. She comes to power at roughly the time of the of the invasion, perhaps in connection with the invasion, although that's speculation. And when you compare her to the Catavallauni and ultimately to Boudicca at the time of the rebellion, she becomes a Roman ally and remains a Roman ally throughout her reign and clearly benefits from that relationship with Rome. So that's one difference between the two. One has this change in position and the other one stays the same. How did Cartimandua then respond to the Roman invasion? Well, after the defeat of the Catavallauni, one of their leaders, Caraticus, he flees and he essentially ends up in what is modern day Wales, where he continues to fight against Roman incursions for the next nine or so years. He's finally defeated by the Roman governor Scapula in AD 51. And then according to the Roman author Tacitus, he leaves his family in the clutches of the Roman army and escapes to Brigantian territory. But Cartamandua captures him and hands him over to the Romans. He is taken to Rome, and he's actually paraded in public by the Emperor Claudius as a sort of a trophy of his, of his victory, and helped to secure this fledging province by ending a long war against a bitter and dangerous enemy. Handed on a plate, on a silver platter. And he's basically trying to evade the Romans by going west into Wales, and then northeast into northern northern England into Brigantian territory, at which point he's got himself into a trap, basically, and then he's handed over. 
Well, yeah, I mean, he, he clearly has allies in, in Wales, the, the couple of tribes there, the Silures and the Ordovicis, and perhaps he expects a similar treatment from the Brigantes, but it's not, not to be the case. Carter Mandua, she, she seems to be pretty powerful at this point, you know, because she's got um, the key instigator of the rebellion in her hands and he's been handed over. Did she experience any challenges to her, her power after she's cemented herself as this Roman ally? Yeah, so Rome doesn't forget this and, in fact, returns the favour with interest. So Cartamandua is married to a man called Venutius. He is her consort, so it seems as though she is essentially the ruler and he is sort of of her lesser partner. And then about six years after the capture of Caraticus, Venutius leads an anti-Roman faction within the Brigantes tribe and attempts to seize power from from Cartamandua. Now, Tacitus states that this is the consequence of Cartamandua divorcing Venutia, so that it's it's kind of a a sort of a personal vendetta. But it seems likely when you you actually kind of read between the lines that this is a kind of a, a, a consequence of the internal politics of the Brigantes, that there are probably two different factions. One is pro-Roman, one is is more anti-Roman. And then during the subsequent fight in Cartamandua, seizes Venutius' brother, some of uh, his other family members, and the response is a major attack on Cartamandua by his warriors. But fortunately, the Roman provincial governor, Scapula, again, um, who was formerly trying to defeat Caraticus, fortunately for Cartamandua, the Roman provincial governor has not forgotten about Cartamandua and her, her service to him and sends an entire legion to preserve her rule. Can I just ask um, a, a quick off-piece question, I hope, just to clarify in my own mind and hopefully for other people. Venutius, the partner of Cartamandua, this sort of consort, is he actually Roman? Was he sort of installed to sort of cosy up romantically to Cartamandua or is he a native Briton who's just got a Roman-sounding name? Both Cartamandua and Venutius are members of the Brigantes tribe. They're, I think in the, in the case of Venutius, it may be that his name has been Romanized. But they're both British. They're not Roman. Understood. Yeah, that's an important point, I think, to sort of fix on because uh, we want to make sure that there aren't sort of other competing ideas within this story. So they're very much fixed as native Britons. Okay. And I think, can I just add a tiny bit, but just to say that we are seeing in their marriage exactly the kind of rifts that we see across the whole of Britain at this time. Cartamandua seems to be a pro-Roman ruler, but her husband Venutius leads these revolts against her and against Roman rule. So even within this pairing, we're seeing the completely different approaches that different um, indigenous leaders are, are taking. So at this point, anyone following this might think, hmm, if I was Rome, I'd quite like to get rid of this Venutius. Is that what happens? Well, initially, after this, this intervention, Venutius seems to go quiet for a little while, and Cartamandua continues to reign for the next decade. And note, while the big rebellion's going on under Boudicca, the Brigantes are keeping out of this. But then in AD 69, Venutius again attempts to seize power. 
Now, according to Tacitus, this is stems from a, a sort of a personal matter. He's goaded by Cartamandua's marriage to his former armor bearer, Velocitus. But again, reading between the lines, the timing is really significant. In AD 69, there is a tumultuous civil war going on in the Roman Empire following the death of the Emperor Nero. So if you are, as it appears to be, a anti-Roman faction, this is a great time to see if you can gain ascendancy. And in fact, as it happens, the legions of Britain are being drawn into this civil conflict. So when Cartamandua presumably calls for aid, the provincial governor cannot send them to help her. He can only send auxiliary soldiers. And while they rescue her, they're not able to prevent Venutius from replacing her as the ruler of the Brigantes. Oh, wow. Okay. So after all the help that she'd given to Rome, things are starting to sort of lose control within the Roman Empire after the death of Nero. And then they have to basically pull their client leader out of the situation and bring her back to the fold, so to speak. Yeah, so they they also, you know, she clearly has an obligation to them, but they also have an obligation to her. So they do go and rescue her, but they just don't have the power to kind of keep her in position. And this is to come back to the point about it's not being inevitable that the Romans are going to conquer Britain. You do see this kind of ebb and flow in Roman interest and Roman and the Roman exercise of power in Britain throughout particularly the first few decades of Roman rule. Hmm. Our Roman author Tacitus, who's the main source for a lot of these stories, does he record what happens to Cartamandua in the end? Well, she gets taken to the legionary fortress at Chester, but her ultimate fate is is unknown. Whether she dies quite soon, I think it probably would have been quite old at this point, or she may just live out her life there, but she's certainly not a factor in the future sort of politics of Roman Britain. And actually, within a few years, Brigantia itself is is formally incorporated within the empire as they're really making concerted effort to push up into the north of, of, of what is modern day England. So Venutius is ultimately unsuccessful in, in resisting Roman power. Can I just add here my personal headcanon here, given that we cannot possibly know what happened, is that both Cartamandua and her ex-husband's younger, sexier armour-bearer, Velocitus, are evacuated and live out their days living at large in Rome at the expense of the Romans. That's very much what I would like to have happened. But we don't actually know whether she was sort of <laughs> self-exiled or whether she stayed in, in, in the, in the uh, British Isles. We don't know. We don't know at all. But I just, I don't know. Your ending for her sounded so sad. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> there's enough tragic endings for Iron Age queens. So, but yeah, we don't know. We don't know exactly what happens in her case. I just wanted to throw out an alternate possible future for her there. Couldn't she have lived it large in Chester? I, I don't know why Chester go all the way to Rome. <laughs> she could. I mean, you're right. You're right. No, it's a, a Roman fortress in Chester and the Eternal City. I mean, just I don't know why I'm even making a yes, of course. So two different women then with two very different experiences of the Romans in certain senses and two very different ends to their respective stories. How would we compare Boudicca and Cartamandua? It's a compare and contrast question for a history essay. <laughs> I set loads of those when I was a university lecturer. They're terrible questions. Anyway, <laughs> It's a disgust question, isn't it? I'm happy to have a stab at this, right? So I think that on paper, as we're told about these women, they sound very different. 
particularly the kind of, you know, short version that you learn about Boudicca in primary school if you do. So valiant queen leads rebellion against the Romans, you know, very kind of, she portrayed this like anti-Roman rebel versus Cartamandua, who's this kind of pro-Roman ruler up in the up in the north, who's sometimes portrayed as, because she hands Caraticus in theory and like a fellow Briton over to the Romans in chains, that she's betraying her people. But I think these two women have a lot more in common than that sort of simplistic version would suggest. So at the time when Cartamandua is handing Caraticus over, probably Boudicca and Prasutagus are also ruling as pro-Roman leaders down in East Anglia. These are two savvy political operators. They are women who hold senior positions of authority in their societies, one in East Anglia, one up in what's now Yorkshire. They are using the Roman invasion and this opportunity to rule with the support of Rome to further their own political careers. And for Boudicca, it all comes tumbling down after her husband dies. And this is partly due to the Romans' attitudes with uh, towards powerful women. But for Cartamandua, she is able to continue eking out this complex political manoeuvring that she is doing. She gets the Romans to intervene in her messy divorce from her husband, Venutius, and then she takes another lover or another husband, Velocatus. She has this incredible power and this incredible ability to rally people around her, in her case, the Romans, whereas Boudicca later uses her power, having turned against Rome for what are possibly quite personal reasons, anger about what was done to her daughters and to herself. She uses her political savviness to rally troops against Rome. But these are two powerful, intelligent, canny political operators in that late Iron Age world who are pulling the strings and trying to get what they want. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated than it uh, first seems or is taught in early education. Andrew, you've mentioned Tacitus, our Roman author, uh, a number of times. Was it just Tacitus who told these original stories of Boudicca and Cartimandua? It's not just Tacitus. I'll just come back on what, what Julie just said there, because it's really important to understand when we try to grapple with their relative successes, their relative similarities and differences, that we are very much seeing the both of them through different lenses. And primarily, we're seeing them as, as people through the lens of the Romans. Now, Tacitus writes two works on, which include the summary of, of what happens in Roman Britain, the annals and the histories. And he gives us a broad outline of Cartamando, also talks about Boudicca. And we also have Cassius Dio, who writes a history of the early conquest of Britain. And other than that, we don't have a huge amount to go on when we're thinking about the sort of the nature of the Iron Age and also the narrative of, of the early decades of, of Roman occupation. So what we're dealing with is a very Roman snapshot of of an Iron Age culture. So written by outsiders for outsiders, and those outsiders are trying to conquer, well, have successfully conquered these people. And they're the ones who get to tell the story of how this, this happens. We must bear that in mind whenever we try to sort of summarize and try to kind of get to grips with who these people are. And just to give you kind of one example of how that really manifests in our story, if we look at Tacitus's view on Cartamandua is very much coloured by the prejudices that he has for, I think, for women in power. So when he gives a, a summary caricature of her, he talks about how she captures Caraticus and how this is a really kind of treacherous act. And that is firstly conditioned by 
his assumption that, like the Romans, the Britons would have been a united people. But as we've discussed, that's very much anachronistic. They are very much fragmented, and each of them are trying to kind of negotiate the politics and and the, the consequences of the Roman invasion in their own way. And then he goes on to say that after handing him over to the Romans, quote, then followed wealth and the self-indulgence of prosperity. Spurning her husband, Venusius, she made Volocatus, his armor-bearer, the partner of her bed and throne. By this enormity, the power of her house was at once shaken to its base. On the side of the husband were the affections of her people, on that of the adulterer, the lust and savage temper of the queen. And what he's trying to do here is say that she, via treachery, gains this great power, this great wealth, and then as a result is kind of corrupted by this, turns to adultery, and ultimately she falls out of favor with her her people and, and suffers a disgrace. And this is a sort of a variation on, on quite a typical moral narrative trope in Roman literature, that power leads to the corruption of character and therefore to a downfall. And it's also shaped by a sort of a stereotype of a woman who can't control her passions. But when we sort of read between the lines, we look at what Tacitus actually records elsewhere, it's quite clear that she is not only accepted as a a female leader, but a very successful female leader. And that these seemingly personal sexual motivations can actually be very comprehensively and convincingly explained by the politics, the internal politics of of the Brigantes and indeed the response to the Roman invasion. It's interesting as well that Tacitus is representing an empire where collaboration was key. So why is he having a go at a woman for collaborating with the empire that he represents? (laughs) It's very strange. Maybe he's just a rampant sexist, I don't know. I think it's it's a difficult one. I think it may be... to do with his views on Rome and the unity of Rome. Oh, I see. That he expects that similar sort of unity from the people that they are attacking, I suspect. But that that's... It's a moral tale. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that that's, that's me speculating that. Oh, that's interesting. So the way that he's written it almost turns it into a bit of a sort of mythical kind of story. That, oh, look what happened over there. And oh, we should learn from that, shouldn't we? Well, yeah, when, when we think about, so maybe this is a bit of a digression, but when we think about what history is, we're perhaps familiar with the way in which we write history today, which is, broadly speaking, an attempt to kind of present the facts of the matter in as much as we can do that. But actually, history as a genre in the Roman period is not about that. Often it is about morality as much as it is about a record of events. Often it's highly political, that you are writing about events according to your interpretation and and what will serve your purpose in the present. So a lot of these authors, Cassius Dio is is a Roman center, Tacitus is the descendant of governor of Britain, Agricola, he wants, he, he writes from a particular perspective to serve his own purpose. So when we deal with Roman sources, we must be aware that they're not necessarily writing for the purpose that we would want them to be, and not necessarily writing in the way that we might understand them to be writing. Interesting. And were they commissioned then by Rome to write these accounts? Were they paid? I don't think that's the right way of, of thinking about it. That there's not a sort of necessarily a, a kind of a, a directive that goes out that you have to kind of write the history of the conquest of Britain in a certain way. These authors come to writing a history for a whole number of different reasons. I see. Okay. 
as you say, Andrew, so Tastas, I think I'm right in saying Agricola is his father-in-law, right? So he's, you know, you can think almost like of politicians kind of writing their memoirs and things. This is people for personal reasons, telling stories of what has happened in sometimes recent and sometimes much more distant history because they have a particular axe to grind. And and as you say, how it's bizarre to talk about one's allies in such a way as they speak about Cartamandua. And the same is true in reverse of that discussion of the rebellion of Boudicca, where she's held up by the Romans as this kind of noble queen avenging this kind of rightful wrong. But partly because Cassius Dio, for example, is trying to draw attention to like financial mismanagement and things, you know, everything is being written for a reason and for a particular audience. And they're perhaps not so bothered about whether it's true. They're bothered. And, you know, one could argue in some ways similar to how we treat history today. You know, we always view it through our own lens. Mm. So we did have a question originally, which was, can the writings of Tacitus be relied upon to be truthful? I guess the answer to that is a pretty clear no. Well, truth and fiction are not necessarily the right framing for this. Every piece of evidence that we have has to be treated in context and understood for its biases and prejudices as you use it to kind of investigate the past. Fascinating. It's like a bowl of spaghetti, isn't it? (laughs) You know, really, it's uh, quite complicated, but interesting nonetheless. So have the characters of Boudicca and Cartamandua been reinterpreted in modern times? That is to say, do we see them differently today because of the age we live in, with our focus on facts, as Andrew said? (laughs) So I find this really fascinating, what's kind of happened with the legacy of Boudicca. So Both of these characters are forgotten for quite a long time after the end of the Roman period. And there are sort of references to them in some kind of early medieval historians and like Bede, but really they don't become a a big part of the national story again until their stories are rediscovered in kind of, you know, previously lost classical texts in the kind of 1500s. And we look at what happens to the story of Boudicca and she is picked up initially, she's kind of associated with Elizabeth I, for example, another powerful woman who like leads her country against a kind of foreign in- invasion. But I think Boudicca would have been quite miffed about this. But Boudicca comes to be quite closely associated with Queen Victoria and somewhat ironically with the British Empire. And this happens kind of gradually. There's this really stonking poem written by a man called William Cooper in the the 1780s, which really explicitly positions the British Empire as the kind of successor to Rome. And it's later when the... um, big statue that people may may know, people who know London, um, down at Bankman on the, the River Thames, there is this statue of Boudicca standing in a chariot with her, her daughters gathered around her and her horses kind of riding out. And there are lines in metal in the pavement from that 1780s poem, um, which is kind of right there that you can read. And so one of the uh, the line says, Regent Caesar never knew thy posterity shall sway, where his eagles never flew, none invincible as they. And that Regent Caesar never knew is, you know, this is talking about the British Empire, is it's really quite sort of jingoistic poem. And I think Boudicca would have been cross because she's she's against the Roman Empire, but this gets kind of transformed into a kind of like sort of like pro-empire stance tangled up with her sort of perceived relationship with Queen Victoria. And it's interesting how later groups like the the suffragettes kind of repurpose that a bit and see her again as a as a rebel. And there's a, a wonderful moment in a um, a suffrage march in in 1908, and in the way that this is kind of depicted in the you know kind of like prints things made at the time. 
but where they use the Boudicca statue as a kind of an important point on that march. And it's all about kind of repositioning that statue, not Boudicca, head of empire, riding out, you know, from the Houses of Parliament, but Boudicca, embattled woman with her daughters, riding on the Houses of Parliament to demand suffrage for, for women. So I think a bit she's become this character that people find whatever they want to find in her story. And Cartamandra, of course, is in some ways a more challenging, you know, the rebel who tries and fails is sort of an easy story to love. But the story of Cartamandua, this savvy political operator who divorces her husband and goes off with his armour bearer and plays off against Rome, she's been much more forgotten in popular culture, I think, perhaps because she's not so easy to love, but she's definitely my favourite. One thing that people are probably wondering about right now is we've just profiled Boudicca and Cartamandua, these two Iron Age queens. Were there other female leaders at this time who exist in the history or are they just forgotten or not explored? We don't have historical sources about other queens. That doesn't mean there weren't other female rulers, because we've already seen how Boudicca appears in the Roman sources when she rebels. Cartamandua appears in the Roman sources when she starts being the squeaky wheel and asking for their assistance. So the Romans don't tell us everything. They tell us a partial story. That's another thing we need to consider when we're talking about these events, really. It's quite fragmented. So moving on to um, an area that uh, you have particular expertise in, Julia. And of course, we've been talking about the way that the Romans record Iron Age people. So the next question is, is there any evidence of Iron Age people representing women in their society then? Yes, absolutely. So we don't have, from the kind of pre-Roman period in Britain, we don't have written sources in the same way that we do for the Roman world. And um, this isn't a society where people are writing their stories down. So my background is that I'm an archaeologist. We learn by excavating the settlements and burial grounds and other sites associated with this time and, and this place. So the Iron Age runs from about 800 BC through to that Roman invasion. So period of a good kind of 800 years from over 2000 years ago. And really, it's quite difficult to talk about the role of women. I can tell you a lot about Iron Age society and the kind of people and what they did. You know, they were farmers, they were herders, and they were hunters. They built these fabulous round houses um, in most places, whether that's out of, you know, wattle and thatch or out of stone. They spin cloth to make clothes. They weave it. They dye it. They make pottery, fabulous um, pottery and beautiful metalwork. They raise children. They go into battle. They have these complex political alliances and things. And I would invite you perhaps to reflect on when I was saying those things, whether you imagined a woman or a man doing those activities, because I deliberately didn't specify. And that's because we know they were happening, but we don't know who did them. We don't necessarily know what the different roles were in, in Iron Age society about whether you were male or whether you were you know, female, what you might have done that would be different. We really have to use burials to get that evidence. And I can tell you from studies that have been done of Iron Age burials, we can't do this everywhere for all of the Iron Age. A lot of places in the Iron Age don't have cemeteries. Maybe they're cremating their dead or disposing of the dead in some other way. But where we can look at cemetery populations, we can see that men and women both seem to have access to the, the same kind of nutrition, certainly as adults. So there's no implication that women are kind of second citizens in any way we can see that there are certainly female burials that are very high status. We can't talk about, you know, queens and things for most of the Iron Age, but we have women buried, you know, fabulous ornaments, perhaps with mirrors 
or jewellery. We have women buried with chariots. And for example, the Wetwang chariot burial up in East Yorkshire, that's a few hundred years before Cartamandua, but shows that there were women of high status at that time too. And there are some really creative things that archaeologists have started doing to try and understand a little bit about, you know, how gender organisation might have happened in the Iron Age. Some brilliant research coming out of the University of Leicester, where a researcher has looked at the size of fingerprints on pottery and found that women and children might have been involved in um, making your kind of sort of standard pottery, but that some areas out in the fens where they're making salts, you know, extracting salts from the seawater, and they have this quite clunky kind of, you know, pottery for doing that. That might have been something that men were going off and doing perhaps in the summer. So we can start to get at it, but all I can really tell you for certain is that women could and did hold positions of high status in Iron Age society, but that doesn't necessarily seem to have been exceptional, and that there's no reason to think that, you know, either men or women were, you know, senior to one another as a as a gender. The one thing we do know that seems to be more specifically male is the idea of going into battle. And we don't really have any secure female burials, burials that are biologically female with kind of weapons or armor. There's a few possibilities, but Mostly that does seem to be people who are biologically male. So there's still a lot of question marks really around the uh, status of men and women in Iron Age society. Your guess is as good as mine. Well, I guess other people can continue debating it after they've finished listening. So as we reflect on this difference between men and women and Iron Age society in general, there's a sort of culture clash kind of going on. Would it be fair to say that the Roman invasion had a significant impact on the status of women, given the position that they appeared to have in pre-Roman Britain, Andrew? With the invasion comes, as you say, sort of an an influx of, inverted commas, a kind of a typical Roman culture. You get objects, Roman objects with which you live your your everyday life. You get new forms of architecture, sort of social mores, such as bathing practices, for example. And that doesn't mean that Iron Age practices wholly disappear, and certainly not, not overnight. But in the main, over the period, you do have what archaeologists often call a Romanization of Britain. Now, If we assume that the Romans did governance in Britain much like they did across the empire, and the evidence for Roman Britain is quite slight, then the Roman model of politics and and administration doesn't really have a career path for women to serve on things like town councils or in regional provisional government or or in the army, etc. And we don't know of any exceptions that were made for kind of existing indigenous practice. So it would seem, therefore, that the consequences of the Roman invasion for women in official positions are are pretty severe. However, there are a couple of things worth bearing in mind. There are powerful women in the Roman Empire, particularly some of the women of the imperial household who seem to exercise a great deal of influence. I'm thinking particularly of the Empress Julia Domna, for example. And it's worth noting that in the same way as the authors that we've talked about today often typecast Boudicca and Cartamanda in a certain way, they often do the same thing to Roman women or even might omit their role entirely. And then the second thing to mention is that official status, having an official position, does not necessarily equate to having power. And we have plenty of evidence, as similar to what Julia was mentioning about the Iron Age, that women have high levels of status, high levels of wealth, education, and therefore perhaps great influence as well. Thinking about one of those questions that we often ask on the English Heritage Podcast, it's kind of the legacy question. For you, Julia, what do you think Boudicca and Cartimandua should be remembered for? 
I'd love to see them remembered as being really savvy political operators, these really powerful women who were pulling strings and, and trying to have things their way, which I think they both are in, in different ways. And they're really using that Roman system of power to their own advantage. So maybe that makes them sound a little bit manipulative and Machiavellian, but I like that vision of them, you know, these powerful politicians, rather than just seeing them as, you know, kind of a sort of slighted mother, Aurora, you know, somebody who's having affairs and things. I I think if these were men, we'd be thinking about them as, you know, powerful leaders and politicians. And that's how I'd like to see them remembered. As we conclude our discussion, then, for people who are interested in finding out more about the Roman invasion and presence in Britannia, where are the best English heritage sites to visit? I mean, I can think of Richborough Roman Fort in Kent on that uh, tip there where the Romans first landed in AD 43. But where else would you recommend, Andrew? Definitely Richborough. And indeed, this summer, visitors can see a brand new exhibition that we've created that really shows off the breadth and the depth of Roman material culture and also represents a, a site that encompasses the entirety of Roman Britain. And perhaps most excitingly, we have built a replica of a wooden and turf fortification that was originally constructed by Claudius's army to protect the Roman invasion fleet at anchor next to Richborough. And this really represents the first footsteps of the Roman conquest of Britain. If you want to maybe start to explore the background to Cartamandua's story, there is a Stanic in North Yorkshire very much in the lands that were formerly controlled by the Brigantes. It's one of our many free-to-enter sites, and visitors can see a small part of a large settlement that became really highly developed during the period that Cartamandu was in power. And there's lots of evidence for the influx of Roman goods, such as wine amphorae, rare tableware, glassware. And while we don't have direct evidence that it was connected to Cartamandua, it has been suggested that Stanic was Cartamandua's sort of capital, her, her kind of showpiece where she was able to show off her power and indeed the kind of the fruits of her successful alliance with Rome. And finally, if you want to kind of get more of a sense of life in Iron Age Britain, then, then there is Maiden Castle in Dorset, which is one of the largest and most complicated Iron Age hill forts in Britain. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, make sure you join us as we answer everything you wanted to know about the Georgians and the Regency period. Characterised by the distinctive fashions and styles of the period, elegance and its achievements in the fine arts, architecture, culture, literature, etc. It's become a subset of the larger Georgian time. Thanks for listening. See you next time.